Hello, my name is Tom Smith. I'm the president and CEO of Wrap Technologies. On today's show, we're going to talk about the controversial topic of reimagining policing to defund, to not defund, race relations, and police violence and brutality. No more important topic than what we're going to be discussing today. Welcome back to part three of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. I'm here with the Reverend Markel Hutchins. He is a noted minister and social justice advocate. And I'm also here with Tom Smith. He is the co-founder of Taser International and currently the president of RAP Technologies. We're talking about remote restraint, making sure that when you are restrained, when the um, law enforcement are restraining people, that uh, nobody has to die in the process. And maybe we can descale the not only the violence, but even the, uh, the potential for violence as a result. Before we finished in the last section, we were talking with the Reverend about the inclusion of communities and the different parts of communities and making sure that everybody comes together. And he has worked tirelessly in doing so. And one of the things that happened recently was the National Faith and Blue Weekend, which he talked about the one across the United States. Tell us a little bit about that, Reverend, how that came about and you know, what are some, a couple of the stories you've heard as a result of it? I mean, you shared one about, about Habitat for Humanity, but let's just, I really want people to understand the impact of this and what difference it can make moving forward. So actually two weeks prior to the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, I convened a meeting with the heads of all of the national law enforcement associations and the US Department of Justice and Homeland Security. So the heads of the National Sheriff's Association, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, major city chiefs association, major county sheriffs, the Fraternal Order of Police, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, the Hispanic Officers Association, just all of the national law enforcement groups because of our relationships with them, we were able to coordinate a meeting where every one of us came together. And my concept was we had to find a way, and this was again, before George Floyd, right. we had to find a way to shift uh, the discussion and really focus our country on solutions to police community engagement challenges. There's been, over the last couple of years, there's been so much focus on the problems that we've not seen any real focus on finding solutions. So right. that was my that was my reason and rationale for convening that meeting. And out of that meeting, we came up with this concept of leveraging, again, houses of worship, faith-based organizations, not one religion or another, but every church, every synagogue, uh, every Muslim uh, mosque, every temple, every uh, um, Buddhist Hindu house of worship, every faith-based organization to serve as a liaison between the communities uh, surrounding those houses of worship and the law enforcement professionals that police in those communities because, again, there are no other uh, community organizations that can come close 
to rivaling the depth and breadth of influence that is held and carried by faith-based organizations. There are 65 million Americans attend some of the, or one of the 350,000 houses of worship in America. These houses of worship have resources, they have assets, they have influence, they have infrastructure. Most importantly, they have people that should serve as a conduit for collaboration between law enforcement and the residents that live in those communities. So there's nothing inherently religious about Faith and Blue Weekend or any of our body of work under the One Congregation, One Precinct banner. It is simply leveraging the assets and resources of those faith-based organizations and their safe space, their space where law enforcement feels comfortable, where community residents feel comfortable, and therein lies a sweet spot and a point of relationality that we must see in America. So my whole concept was, while we talk about policy and procedural reform, the greatest reform that we need in America today is relational reformations, how law enforcement officers deal with and police the communities that they're sworn to protect and serve and how those communities see and view and experience and appreciate the law enforcement professionals in their local communities. And that's how Faith in Blue Weekend was, was conceptualized. So in a matter of just a few months, we developed all of the marketing materials that were necessary. We reached out to our corporate partners at RAP Technologies, at FirstNet built with AT&T and in Motorola Solutions. We had a lot of companies to tell us no. And I, I was just really surprised that there's so many companies that are willing to fund protests and demonstrations that really don't have an underlying solution, but they weren't willing to step up and actually get involved in something that was nationwide, that was grassroots, that involved law enforcement, bridging the gaps, bringing law enforcement and communities together. But we saw an enormous amount of success from one coast in the United States of America to another. In the city of New York, there were 82 Faith in Blue activities held by NYPD alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. So across the country from New York to Los Angeles, there was an essay contest in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where beautiful where students would would write in and we were able to do all of these things in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of COVID, we were able to organize and carry out National Faith in Blue Weekend with a thousand activities across 45 of our 50 states plus Washington DC. What that says to me is there is an appetite to actually turn to each other. There is an appetite, there's a, a yearning among the American people to find solutions and pathways forward. And we saw a number of crucial conversations. We saw officers praying and crying with people in residence. We saw officers playing softball and football with kids in local communities. The capacity that those engagements have to shift the mindset and the psychosis 
of officers and residents at the same time, again, cannot be understated. So in subsequent months and in next year's National Faith in Blue Weekend, we're going to do even more. We're going to go even further. And it really just represents a mindset, a theory that if we turn to each other and not on each other, if we're able to march together and to walk together instead of marching and screaming on one another, there is no limit to the good that we can do. And that is the mindset behind Faith and Blue Weekend. Uh, folks can visit the website faithandblueand.org faithandblue.org and see the, the whole philosophy behind it. But I, again, I can't say thank you enough to our partners at Rap Technologies and our other sponsors because the corporate dollars made it possible for us to do that kind of engagement October 9th through the 12th. And we're looking forward to Faith and Blue Weekend 2021. And we hope, um, Dove, that you're, you and your listeners will be engaged in those efforts as well. Sounds wonderful. And so let me let me let me poke a hole for a moment because I sure. think it might be valuable. Um, and that is the word faith. Sure. Uh, we know the rise of uh, people who are non-faith um, is much bigger in the United States than actually people of faith. Um, it doesn't mean they don't want to be part of this. It doesn't mean they don't want to be part of the solution. In fact, I would say very many of the ones I know definitely want to be part of the solution. Sure. How, what would you say to somebody who is a self-proclaimed atheist or uh, agnostic um, who has no particular desire to be part of anything that is got anything to do with the religion uh, and maybe even sees that as part of the problem. What would you say to them in the context of this, in the context well, I of what you're doing? What I would say to them is there's nothing, again, what I mentioned before, there's nothing religious about Faith in Blue Weekend. It's simply, there's nothing sectarian. In fact, one of the things that we stress to all of the event organizers is what, if you're going to organize under this banner, it cannot have a religious or even a spiritual tinge to it. It's gotta be forced face off of focused on police community collaboration, actually addressing the issues that are at hand. So although these events are coordinated with faith-based organizations, again, because they carry so much influence and there's no other community assets that have the size, this engagement, the participation uh, that can come close to rivaling that of the faith community. So in these local events, the things that, that happen through Faith in Blue Weekend and all of the follow-up uh, will involve people of every walk of life, of every uh, perspective. So those who are religious and those who are non-religious, it really has nothing to do with that at all. Just because a, a house of worship organizes the event it is not a religious event. It's organized for the community, for community engagement purposes. And, and that's what I wanted to, that's why I brought it up, because I Absolutely. think that, that's why I, I think that people need to understand uh, if you're going to feel any sort of around the word faith, it's easy. I'm going to help you with it. Um, and that is understand it as faith in humanity. Not faith in a divinity, but faith in humanity. Let's Absolutely. come together in the faith of humanity. Let's believe in each other outside of color or race or faith or whatever religion or whatever it is. But let's have a faith in humanity. Let's have a faith in people that 
the majority, and when I say the majority, I mean the vast majority of people who go into law enforcement go into it because they care about the community, Absolutely. faith in humanity. The vast amount of people in any community, whether they're wealthy or poor, are decent human beings. And let's return to the faith in humanity that has got nothing to do with religion. So Absolutely. if it's going to be a faith and blue weekend, let's make it as if you're if you're if you're an alt in turmoil to come to. I'm showing up here as somebody who believes in the faith of humanity. Yeah, and and having faith in each other, and and recognizing, yeah, exactly. and 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 recognizing, quite frankly, that most people want to see. Uh, a fair and equitable and just America. Most folks want to see that. Now, it really blows my mind how some folks see what some folks believe are the pathways to those kinds of things. But the truth of the matter is, um, we talked about this much earlier, people's perspectives guide who they vote for, how they align themselves, or the things that they engage in. But even those people, my mother and father taught me when I was growing up that Anybody that has the capacity for evil also has a capacity for good. And uh, there's some good in the best and the worst. Uh, there's some good in the worst of us and some bad in the best of us. We have to have faith in each other to know that ultimately the good in humanity will prevail and the evil forces, whatever that looks like and whatever that means to any of us will ultimately not win these fights. Yeah. And I think to jump on that too, a lot of the activities that were done over Faith and Blue Weekend, Dove, to your point, were done at schools. They Absolutely. Were park. They were done in the parks. They were done, you know, other places that people gather within the community. So I love that term about faith and humanity because it's it's about the community. And last time I checked in my civics learning, the community is supposed to help get the politicians to get the laws that the police are gonna help inform on behalf of the community. So it all is supposed to be working together. So let's, that's where these things have to start at the community levels, uh, which is, you know, again, you're not gonna see it dictated from on high from anybody that's gonna make a difference. No, and, and you know, you, what you brought up there, Tom, was very important because now we, that takes us into another subject, which is that when we don't feel represented, uh, and when I say we, I'm talking about any group. When we don't feel represented, um, you know, we look to our, uh, our people we elected into power. And what we know is that that system's not working very well um, in all kinds of ways uh, and for all kinds of reasons, some of which we've already gone, gone over. But let's, so then there becomes a movement, a grassroots movement. Uh, Black Lives Matter is a movement. Um, uh, ben and Jerry's wrote an article, I think it was 12 years ago, about why Black Lives Matter before it was all, you know, the cool thing to write about. And it didn't damage their business. It actually did them no harm. They were very keen on that. And now we've got Black Lives Matter. But I am concerned as a somebody who is involved in, in, in the humanities and psychology and leadership. Um, I'm very concerned about that it looks to me, and I'm giving you my, my bias here, I own that. It looks to me like a lot of Black, what Black Lives Matter is about, when I go to the website, is it looks like it's been, a lot of it has been co-opted, maybe even hijacked to become a Marxist movement, which gives the other side a really great way to fight back. 
because it's not really about Black Lives Matter. It's about socialism. And, you know, saying socialism in America, you might as well say Nazi. I mean, it's just like, you know, when Bernie Sanders came out and said he was a socialist Democrat, I was like, oh, Bernie, I love you, but please, why are you using that term? They thought Obama was a socialist and he was a corporate Democrat. So, you know, like, I'm concerned about that side of it. I'd love to hear from you two about, is that what's happening in Black Lives Matter? Or, and what can we do to make sure it stays on target with making sure that it is about Black Lives Matter? Because I had a conversation with somebody recently, a, a white friend of mine who said, you know, but all lives matter. And I'm like, okay, dude, let me just give you this example. Okay, and he goes, what? I said, you live in a house, okay? And your house has a black door and your house catches on fire and the fire brigade comes, but they, and the, there's another house on the street and it's got a white door and the fire brigade comes and he puts out the house on fire that's got a white door. What do you think? And you go, well, why aren't they putting out mine? Yes, because your black house matters, right? And he goes, yeah, exactly. All, it, all black lives matter means is that it matters as much as anybody else's. It doesn't mean theirs don't, don't matter, but people are not putting out the fire in the black house. This is a freaking problem. And, and I want it to come back to that. And it seems like it's gotten politicized. It seems like it's gotten co-opted. I want to hear from what do you guys see in there? Am I nuts? Well, no, I don't think you're nuts at all. But I, I do think, Good. and I, I talked about this earlier, words matter. They really yes. do matter. And in, in this environment, uh, it's important to choose your words, particularly when you have a public voice or uh, when you have a group that has a public voice. It's important to pick your words and use them wisely. Uh, what I'm about to say is controversial to some people, but I don't use the terminology Black Lives Matter. I don't reference it. And the reason I don't is because I recognize that solutions and, and words are very, very important and they're nuanced because yep. our words not only speak that which is audible, but they also speak that which is inaudible. But here's how I would frame it. Like you talked about the house. Uh, what I, The way in which I frame it is if you've got five finger and one of your finger gets cut, and if you don't attend to that individual finger, then that finger is going to catch gangrene and perhaps rot off if you don't get it some attention. It's not only in the best interest of that one finger, but it's in the best interest of your whole hand to take care of the challenges of that individual finger. That's what the message is of the psychology and the intent behind the Black Lives Matter movement, but the wording is what has been that has compromised its its positioning because and I and I keep going back to that which I'm I'm committed to and that is the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s they didn't use the language negroes would overcome or or black people would overcome but they said black and white together we have never had a successful movement trying to segregate our morality or our messaging it does not work. We have to bring ourselves together and welcome our messages, our mantra, and our motto 
must be welcoming and embracing because the issues around social and uh, inequity, civil and human rights, racial equality, systematic racism, we can't address those issues with Black folks alone. It must bring other folks into it. But I think you're absolutely right. The terminology has been co-opted. What we have to do now is to give some definition to what the intent and the aspiration originally behind that movement really was. Yeah, and, and, and I, sorry, Tom, go ahead. If, if you listen to the comments here, you know, back with the, the original civil rights movements, it was a group of people that were marching. Exactly. The media today has instigated this that is now pitting sides against each other. They'll use Black Lives Matter, white supremacists, whatever the different terminologies are, to try and describe the different groups rather than saying, hey, a group of people are protesting about this scenario, they are automatically pitting and exacerbating. To, to Reverend Markell's point, it is being driven to the point now because words matter rather than focusing on why they're gathering, they're focusing on the different groups within that that are trying to gather so that they try and create conflict right out of the gate. So absolutely the media needs to change their terminology as well to get rid of those those definitions that are automatically just you know it's bringing people's bias whether you like it or not when they hear the term rather than just saying hey there's a protest going on they have to say it's a protest of xyz or abc which immediately brings biases to this rather than just covering that there's a protest but the challenge is that human beings and this is psychology human beings are tribal that's truth we're tribal that is our base psychology. It's not our evolution. It's not what we spiritually or need to aspire to, but it's still there at the base level. And if we keep people in fear, then they react inside of the bias of the tribe. And you're absolutely right. That's what's happening in the media. And, but at the same time, and I want to put this forward because I really want to hear from you two on it. Uh, I've spoken about this many times. We are seeing this political, the politically correct movement come up. And, and what I see in it, this is my opinion, what I see in it is everybody's a freaking victim. You're a victim of the language. You know, uh, the, there's microaggressions, you know, you know, well, you said this, you didn't call me they, and you, you know, like whatever it is, right? I use the wrong term. And let's face it, the, the term for, for black people has changed a lot in the last 20 years. I mean, it's like this, you couldn't say black people. Now you can, you couldn't say, you know, I mean, there was all kinds of different things. And it's, it's all gone a bit nuts as far as I'm concerned, because as you said, words do matter, but the challenge with it is that on one side of that, those, that policing of words is uh, on the left. I see as creating what might even be thought police at the extreme you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to think that. And on the other side is people who are not necessarily racist or not even, you know, any of those things who have a real backlash against this political correctness. In Canada, we changed the law around this and it's terrible. Like, you know, you can be, you can be, uh, it's a criminal offense to not call somebody by their right uh, prefix. That's insane. If you tell me you want me to call you they, I have no problem with that. But if you mandate it by law, that's nuts. So on one side, we've got this uh, victim languaging of, oh, you know, that's offensive. You can't say that. I'll give you an example. 
talking to somebody recently who was dealing with a corporate, somebody in my world who's a, who's a corporate consultant, talking with an executive who said she was really frustrated. And he said, why? And she said, because, flip, because of flip charts. And he goes, why is that frustrating? And she goes, we're having all these meetings about, fresh, about flip charts. And he goes, about flip charts? The paper, they, do I understand the piece of paper you write on? She goes, yeah. And he goes, what's the problem? She said, we can't call them that. And he goes, why not? And she said, because legal are now saying we can't use that term because flip is a derogatory term for a Filipino. It's a flip chart. Mm -hmm. And no, no Filipino I've ever met, and I've got Filipino friends, has ever felt like they're being insulted by the name of a flip chart. That's the craziness of this. And it creates victims. And when you have it in psychology, when you have victims, you have to have a hero. When you have a hero and you desperately need a hero, well, guess what? Now you're setting up for a authoritarian leader. Only I can save you. It's up to me. I'm the one who's I've done more for all that. I, I, I language rather than a we language. Talk to us about what you talk to me, ours, our audience, about what you're seeing in this and is this, does this uh, over uh, hygienizing language, is it hyperbolic? Is it creating a bigger problem? I know the intent was to solve a problem. I get that. I respect their intent, but has it gone too far? And how does that work for you, Reverend, in the, in the world of speaking to the people as you do? And for you, Tom, even at a corporate level and speaking to your own people. And we talked about diversity. Well, for me, I, I think there's a delicate balance to be struck there. I don't think that, and, and this is one of the, the challenges that I have with the current administration in the United States of America's uh, federal government. Uh, it doesn't mean to be um, politically or tactfully decent doesn't mean to be politically correct. Now, this oh. the, the the example that you gave is just ridiculous. I mean, it's it's um we we have seen an increase in this political correctness, um, you know, and 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 so I I don't disagree with you at all. But balance with that, we've got to recognize that there are some terminologies that are loaded with historic, uh, like the N-word, for example. Yep. Uh, you can call me a lot of things and, and, and we can laugh about it, but don't call me that because no. of the historic weight of that kind of terminology. So I think there's a delicate balance to be struck there, but I do certainly agree with you when our corporate and business uh, sectors go so far into this uh, ridiculous political correctness, it, ha it has the exact opposite effect of what we should want. And that is for people to be treated fairly and justly, no matter who they are and where they're from. So it really does in that instance, it, and in that sense, it really does undermine the interest of justice and equality. And I'll tell you another thing, all of these uh, uh, companies that are now somehow deciding that diversity and inclusion is important to them. The truth of the matter is diversity and inclusion has been important the whole time. They exactly. just didn't place, a, they didn't place a premium on it and didn't recognize the value. So I think that, uh, again, 
what we've got to do is we have got to have these conversations. We've got to challenge each other. We've got to challenge one another to see these things differently, to see diversity and inclusion as value added, uh, but do so in a way that does not promote political correctness that is detrimental to our underlying interests of justice and equity for all people. Absolutely. What about for you, Tom? Thank you. That's excellent, Reverend. Yeah, it, it's actually, again, it's really easy for people to point at a problem. So in the political correctness environment, the fact that somebody's going after the word flip chart is ridiculous, but somebody would say, hey, look, there's another problem. You know, that that's where from the corporate side, working with what, what uh, Reverend and I are working on, that's where the solutions come back in. And we, you know, again, we, you have to be careful and you have to be aware of that but we're, we're talking about solutions. And, and you, know, you do see all these corporate accounts putting money into these ads to, so that they can feel better or sleep well at night. That's not, that's not solving the problem. That's solving their problem. We need yes. community problems. We need to engage at the outside at the community level you know, the, to be able to go say, I spent X million dollars on, on you know, social diversity ads or whatever the case. That's that's just so that they feel better. Or maybe they, you know, can check a box. We need action that occur in the communities. We need to get engagement in those levels. And, and for me, that's where, again, people have to stop looking at every micro word to things that are ridiculous and look for the problems. Let's have, let's spend that energy and find the solutions uh, that are going to help make this thing go forward because that's to take. And to that point, uh, gentlemen, one of the things that frustrates me often with with this politically correct environment uh, where corporate leaders are trying to do things just for political purposes, not because uh, they really mean it. When you have a major corporation that I won't name, but you have a major corporation pumping dollars into ads that have Black Lives Matter, uh, but they won't put a dime into the city of Chicago to try to help some of the young people that are committing violent crimes to have alternatives to turning to crime. If they can put millions and millions of dollars into buying billboards that promote Black Lives Matter that has that message, but they won't put a dime into communities and projects and programs that actually move the needle on race relations and racial equality and finding solutions in local communities, that's where the political correctness, in my estimation, goes off the rails. We have got to, people like us that have voices, that have some degree of influence, we have to challenge our corporate friends to place resources to, and our, and, and our private friends, our wealthy friends, all of our friends, to place their time and effort and resources into things that actually make a difference, not just message a difference, but make a difference. And that's what I think we, we're talking about right now. That is so wonderfully important what you just said there. Um, I, I really believe with every fiber of my being, we have got to stop looking right and start doing right. Absolutely. We've got to stop sending the right message and instead do the right thing. And that takes excuse me, that takes bigger balls. It's easy to buy a billboard 
that's fine and you can write it off and it's great because you can write it off as publicity but actually putting yourself on the line like i said the ben and jerry's letter 12 <laughs> years ago 11 12 years ago that was putting their corporation on the line they stepped up and and said something that was not being said that they made a difference that they did fight for civil rights companies that are stepping into that and making a difference in the communities is vitally important as we close up this section, you brought up something here, Reverend, that I want to bring back, um, which is you talked about Chicago. And Chicago, we know, is a hotbed of violence. And the backlash, the push is it's black on black violence. It's not blue on black violence. It's at a far greater level. And I personally believe, because of where I grew up, that you can't separate economics from this thing. And so is that the problem? Is that, do you think that that's actually the real problem? Is that, and is the pushback from the other side? Well, there are other poor communities that are not doing that. What do you think is the issue? The issue is, first of all, the terminology black on black uh, crime is a flaw. It's based upon a flawed premise. And when your premise is flawed, anything that flows from that premise is also going to be flawed. People Absolutely. don't commit violence based on race. They commit violence based on location because black people live primarily because again, we are tribal. All of us are black people live around black people. Uh, uh, Hispanic people tend to live among Hispanic Asians and others people commit crimes where they live. So the fact that there's so much violence in Chicago among African-Americans or black people is because they live among each other. But I think you're absolutely right. We've got to first deal with the flawed premise of this idea of quote unquote black on black crime. But secondly, we have to deal with what drives crime a lack of opportunities, a lack of investment, a lack of exposure, lack of education. Uh, in Chicago, they've got, in, in many communities, they've got second-class schools and first-class jails. That, that kind of lack of opportunities where people in local communities go to work every day and, and work the hardest jobs. They clean our hotel rooms. They clean up our airplanes. They, they prepare lunch in our children's schools and never make enough money to own a car or to buy a home. What that does, it drives people to a place of despair and they raise children with this sense of hopelessness and helplessness. So when we talk about issues like a rise in crime in cities like Chicago, those of us who have voices as civil and human rights advocates, look, one of the biggest arguments that I've had in recent days with, is with one of our most high profile civil rights leaders, who's a friend of mine. We argued about this because he said, how can you stand and work with the police when police are killing us. And I said to him, because police are also solving the crimes when we're killing each other. And we, as long as we are sitting around shooting marbles and talking to each other about police community challenges, we're doing nothing. We have to talk to those in law enforcement, in the criminal justice system, collaborate with those. Because again, I honestly believe there's more that unites us together than there is that divides us. But we have to deal 
with these twin evils at the same time because a young man in Chicago today, a young man in Atlanta or Detroit or Washington or Los Angeles is a lot more likely to be killed by another citizen in gun violence than he is to be killed by a law enforcement professional. We have got to deal with both of these issues at the same time because they're both equally important to the health and prosperity, not just of the communities of color in our country, but to our country overall. And I think white Americans must come to the conclusion that we have to, we have to fight together, not just for the good of black communities, but for the good of all communities, because we are all inextricably linked in this web of what Dr. King called mutuality. Yeah, and you know, that piece there around being born into hopelessness um, and, you know, crime being uh, much bigger in these communities. You know, I have never actually spoken about this before, but where I was born, as I mentioned earlier, I was born in, in abject poverty in a ghetto in the UK. Um, and it was, it was a ghetto by virtue of economics, not by virtue of race. Um, in fact, there was many different races where I was born. But I never spoke about this before, but I, you know, I grew up around all this crime and violence and all these things, and it was never part of my, me. I was never in that guy. I was a spiritual person. I, I went and studied spiritual things. But I got married at 16 years old, not for it, not because my wife was pregnant, but because I chose to get married. I was insane, but that's a different story. Um, but to eat, I went into the abandoned buildings that were around where I lived and I stole the lead off the roofs and took that lead to the scrap metal places to get money to eat. I was doing crime. I don't consider myself a criminal person, but I was doing crime to eat. Now, expand that out into a community and I lived in a, in a community of violence and crime and addiction and all those things because what people don't realize is that a lot of those behaviors, and this is psychology again, human beings, doesn't matter whether it's me, whether it's the Reverend, whether it's Tom, or whether it's you listening, watching, human beings are always doing things to feel better. No matter who you are. You can look down on the heroin addict and go, oh, you know, and have all your judgment. But every one of us, people standing in church are doing it to feel better. We're all doing things to feel better. And if we forget that, we forget the humanity of each individual. And if you're, if you're in an environment where everybody is trying to feel better and there's no way to feel better because you can't feed your belly or because the only way to feel better is by shooting up, then you're going to grow up in a community that is extremely um, marginalized and judged down by the rest of the world. And we need to understand that to change, to make the shifts, not just in race, but in communities, is we have to, we have to level this massive gap in economics that's going on. Because here's the thing, there is a lot of violence uh, by law enforcement and unjustified, no doubt about it, against people of color. But we don't talk about is the violence against poor people by blue people, by the, by the police force, that go on in very poor communities. That's, that's not black. That's often white. There are a lot of, quote, hillbillies who are killed 
by police because they're just so damn poor and they're living in horrible communities. And this is where I think my voice is important. It's where Tom's voice is important as well in the corporate world, in what we're doing, as well as what you're doing, Reverend, because yes, um, I have a, uh, I have a community just like you. I am a preacher. <laughs> you might have guessed. Uh, I am a preacher. It's just a different platform. And we've got to come together and see that this inequity, this lack of equality economically is what's actually driving it because the equality, lack of equality in money is creating an equal, a lack of equality in power. That's Absolutely. creating an easy way to divide us. And I'm not talking about Marxism. That's not my idea at all. I am a capitalist. But it's about like... If you, as you said, if you're working a job and you can't pay for your kids uh, and you can't buy a car and you're living in some crappy hole and you're working three jobs, yeah, your kids are not seeing that working is a good idea. They're saying, well, that guy down the street's got gold on. Let's go do that. How did he get the gold? He sold crack or he sold whatever it was or he robbed. Okay, that seems to be the path. And I think we forget that. It's so easy to look down and go, oh, but they. Well, you know, one of the great challenges is one of my things my wife said to me the other night when we were watching Chicago 7, she said, but Dove, you'll never understand. Yes. And I said, sweetie, you know, I was crying. I said, you're absolutely right. I can understand. I talked about race before. I said that, you know, I'm a Jew. I was born Jewish. I got my nuts kicked several times, many times for being Jewish. But I had to inform that. That wasn't informed when I walked in the room. When a, when a person of color walks in the room, that's informed. That, that, that comes at them. When you're driving down the street and your heart's pounding because there's blue light behind you, that doesn't happen to me as a white guy. And, and I think we've got to really get this, that we, it's, we'll never fully understand. So we need to two ears and one mouth. We need to listen a hell of a lot more. And part of that, if we white people can solve a problem, it's like looking at, okay, we can't step into black skin. We can't step into other skin, but we can look at the economics. We can get the numbers and we can make the difference there. And Dove, I want to, yeah, I, I want to just echo what you said. There, there are two difference. I think what your wife was saying is something that uh, I've said many times and, and I've referenced in, in speeches and lectures across this country. Um, there's a there there are two different levels of understanding. There's an intellectual understanding that is driven by one's uh, intellectual aptitude and capacity. So people have varying degrees of ability to understand things intellectually. But then there's a different, higher degree of of understanding, and that is experiential. There's some things you just cannot understand if you've not experienced them. And that's not unique to matters of race or racism no. or racial inequity. There's certain things you will never understand until you live through it. I will give you an example. As we're recording this today, this is my father's birthday, uh, his birthday. My dad died two years ago. Unless you have lost a parent, 
you might think you understand what that experience is like, but unless you've lost a parent, you don't know what that feels like. I've never lost a child. And I think I intellectually understand how devastating it is if something were to happen to my son and I would lose him to death. But I'm crystal clear that I never want that to happen because I never want to get the level of understanding that comes with experience. One of the things that I think we have a, a challenge with is helping white Americans to understand the different degrees and levels of understanding. You might think intellectually, you understand what it feels like for me as a black man driving a nice car for a police officer to get behind me, but it's a different degree of understanding when you experience it. And I think that's what your wife was saying to you is, Absolutely. unless you've been through what I've been through, unless I've been through what you have been through, I think I intellectually understand the weight that Tom carries as the chairman or as the president and CEO of Rap Technology and the responsibilities he has. But I don't know what that experiential understanding includes because I've not served in that particular capacity and in that context. So I think we, we are absolutely having a, a critical conversation. And I hope that if all of your listeners take nothing else from this conversation that they take from this conversation, that there are different degrees of understanding when it comes to the issues that we've discussed in this podcast. There's an intellectual academic understanding, but then there's a whole nother level. And that comes from experience and engagement. Absolutely. We are at the end of our third section of this incredibly invigorating and important conversation uh, with Reverend Markel Hutchins and Tom Smith. We are going to be back with part four, our final part. We're going to talk about action. We're going to talk about the action you can take the action that uh, Tom and his community with Rap Technologies uh, is is making and the differences that we can all pull together and, and what we can actually do. Let's talk about the solutions when we come back. Again, thank you for joining us and stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. We'll see you in part four.